Thank you, Lord, for that promise that Joe just sang about, that for all eternity we'll reign with you. What a glorious future that you have for your children. And we thank you for it. We praise you for it. Help us live in the, in the expectation of what is to come. Lord, I want to lift up uh, our brother Paul, who took a header off his bike yesterday. Just pray that there's nothing seriously wrong, that you heal him quickly. And we pray for our brother Sezo, Lord, and lift him up to you and ask for your help there. Especially help Sonico as she's the caregiver. And so be with them and may your comfort be there. Thank you, Lord, this morning for your word. Thank you for the letter that Paul wrote to the Corinthians. Thank you for preserving it these last 2,000 years so that we could be encouraged and inspired by it today. So, Lord, as we, as we read it, as, we, as I talk about it, Lord, help it to speak to our hearts and help us to hear your voice in it. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Um, Children can be dismissed for Children's Church, and your teacher will meet you in the back there. And um, I forgot to mention in the announcements, speaking of Cezal and Sonico, they would like a volunteer to come in Monday, Tuesday, or Wednesday mornings to uh, just be with Cezal for a couple hours while Sonico gets away and does shopping. Um, it's really hard. She, it's hard for her to take him with their shopping, so they just need someone to come and be there with them while she does that. So if you, uh, if you are willing to do that, if you have time to do that, just uh, give them a call. If you don't know their phone number, uh, see myself or one of the elders and we can share that number with you and we'll try to arrange somebody to help. Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday. Today we are in, if you're guests with us, thank you for joining us this morning. We're in 1 Corinthians. We just go through one book of the Bible at a time. You happen to have joined us when we're in Corinthians. And we're in the end of chapter 1, 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 31. In honor of God's word, would you stand with me as I read that, those verses? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 through 31. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. And God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that it is as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So I trust that you all had a blessed Thanksgiving and are recovering well <laughs> from your turkey coma. <laughs> we had a great one, a really good one with family, and I hope you did too. And as God would have it, this passage today is one that we can really give thanks for. It just kind of fits in with this 
Thanksgiving season. I hope you remember last week's message that taught us that giving thanks should be the normal Christian life. It should just be a part of how, how Christians live there every day because uh, the Apostle Paul told us in 1 Thessalonians 5.18, in everything give thanks. This is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. God is so good and he is worthy of our continual praise. Some people think that, you know, well, if we go to heaven and we just praise God all the time, isn't that kind of going to get boring? Nope. <laughs> because he's an infinite God and as more and more is revealed of who he is and how wonderful and how gracious, how merciful, how loving, we're just going to want to. It's going to be our pleasure to praise him forever and ever. You know, it's because our current comprehension of him is so limited that we can even think that it might be boring. So today's passage, I think, is going to open our comprehension a little more to his greatness and how amazing he is. In verse 26, it reads, For consider your calling brothers. Always when we see that word brothers in the Greek, it means brothers and sisters. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. Every time I come across that verse, it reminds me of the Countess of Huntington. She said, I was saved by an M. It doesn't say not any. It says not many. Get it? Saved by M. The Bible declares not many were of noble birth. And thank God because very few of us were of noble birth. Amen. Paul's referring to an Old Testament passage, which he often does, he regularly does all throughout his writings, because he, he himself was a rabbi steeped in Jewish tradition, and, and he's referring to Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24. You'll notice as, I, as we go through this verse, as we look at this verse, Jeremiah 9, 23, and 24, there, there, there's the same idea, it's just different words. It reads, thus says the Lord, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. And he's going to directly, Paul's going to directly quote that last part of that verse, verse 31, in verse 31 in our passage today. The passage gives us, this verse in Jeremiah, gives us a different perspective on life. It's a completely different from the way that the world thinks. Paul can see the reality of it in the makeup of the Corinthian believers. It's, you know, it's believed that most of the church in Corinth, especially the church at, at, uh, throughout the, the area at the time, but especially in Corinth, consisted mostly of slaves. It's kind of like what's happening now in India. The, low, the lowest caste system in India are coming to Christ in droves. Um, that's not to say that there weren't influential people also 
Um, we read about them in, uh, in passages in scripture. But the church was the only group that broke all the boundaries, slave or free, rich or poor, male or female, Jew or Gentile, and educated or illiterate. In any church in that time, you could find someone from every one of those positions in the world. But in the eyes of the world, they were all foolish for accepting this crucified Messiah. It was like, why are you worshiping a condemned and, and, and executed criminal? But when the, what the world cannot see, what can only be seen when one has been given spiritual sight, is that God is rebuking the idolatry of human wisdom through the cross. Let's consider our calling. Our calling. Let me see. Is there uh, maybe some people who were in cults here? And are there some people who are not especially educated in the ways of the world? Are there some who were struggling with drug addictions? Are there some adulterers? Even some who dabbled in witchcraft? Many deep in the new age. A few of us even grew up in lukewarm Christianity that kind of indoctrinated us against a real relationship with Jesus Christ. So you see your calling, brothers and sisters. Have you considered the miracle of your salvation? That God would draw you out of from whatever you were in and bring you to himself. Just think for a second, what if God only called the righteous, the people that really had it together? Or let's make the bar a little lower and ask, what if he had a limit on the number of sins before he called you? <laughs> or the seriousness of those sins before he considered making you his own? What, what if those with big egos were disqualified? Or how about an IQ threshold? Would that not make God somewhat of a snob? Think about that. Thank God he takes us in any condition because all have sinned and fall short of his glory. Amen. Salvation is based on his grace, not on our ability or any inherent quality that we have. Paul isn't belittling education or intelligence or being a person of influence, but he's saying those qualities will never get you to God. Those qualities can never bring you to God or the truth of the cross. It's the meek who listen to the gospel. It's those who know they need something beyond themselves. The prideful turn away, trusting in themselves and in their good works. The wealthy trust their riches. The scholars trust this world's wisdom. But when tragedy strikes, we realize the world's answers don't cut it. They're, in, they're insufficient. No matter our status in life, we turn to God or we harden our hearts. The majority of the early church were slaves and probably more so in Corinth than any other church because Corinth had about 100,000 slaves that carried those boats across the isthmus. And so there, there was a preponderance of slaves there. And isn't that the heart of God all throughout Scripture to comfort the oppressed and the downtrodden? 
The very nation of Israel was created when they were brought out of slavery. It's the heart of Christianity today. How many ministries help those who are unable to help themselves? Whether the impoverished, medically needed, sexually trafficked victims, Christians are there to help. It's Christians who are there displaying the heart of God. It's why Iran has one of the fastest growing churches today because they have one of the highest rates of drug addiction and suicide. The oppressed realize how much they need God, which helps them be open to the gospel, whereas the rich and comfortable often don't want to see their real need. But remember too that it's not many, as the Countess of Huntington said, it doesn't say not any. God's love reaches out to the rich and powerful and intellectual and noble. Even some of them realize their need for a savior and then God uses their gifting to reach out to those that are in their circles to exalt his name among them. They can reach out to those in their social groups that we would never be able to communicate with. God needs us to be a voice in every stratum of our society. We must be careful though when they come, when those important influential people, actors, musicians who are famous come into the church not to parade them as special because the ground at the cross is level for all, amen? You know, I found that whenever people try to exalt someone because they were famous in the world, boy, the enemy goes after them like crazy because we're saying they're special because they've got this gift. No, they're just like all the rest of us. They needed Christ and he saved them. Paul's confronting their prideful allegiance to preachers. Remember earlier in the chapter, they were saying, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Cephas. So he's confronting that pride in their sponsor. You know, that the patronage was a big deal in the, the world of the first century. Who's your patron? Who, who supports you? Who's behind you? Who is it that you're connected with? And Paul's saying that doesn't work in the Christian world, in the kingdom of God. They're, those things are meaningless to God. In fact, God's heart is drawn to the weak and the defenseless. And he loves to show the riches of his grace by transforming those who were the worst blasphemers and making them into evangelists. And he was a, Paul was a perfect example of that. Our, our brother Jory was a proponent of atheism. And he loved to try to destroy the faith of Christians. And his sharp mind could spin a Christian argument into knots. But then God got a hold of him and made him a new creation and an elder in our church today. Many of you may never met Terry Call. Terry Call, uh, there used to be a trailer park across the street from Wayside here. And what, pardon me? Anybody remember the name of it? Now we've all forgotten. <laughs> That's how long ago it was. But there was an old trailer park. It's Now it's a big empty lot. They've been trying to do something with it, but no one's ever been able to get it together. And he and his wife, Karen, would come up what used to be a ramp here by the front entrance of the church and take a sermon 
on their way to their drug dealer. They had two sweet little girls. At that time, I think they were just four and five years old. They, they would just turn them loose to play all day while they went and got their drugs and got high. But they would pick up the sermon and read it. And eventually, Karen came. And then she got her husband, Terry, to come. And I'll never forget Terry going out the first Sunday he came because we'd been praying for Terry to come. And as Terry was leaving, I said, it's so great to see you, Terry. I'm glad you came. I hope we see you again. And he says, yeah, we'll see. <laughs> Ex-Marine, you know, drug addict. We'll see. And Terry came back, and Terry came back. And long story short, eventually, Terry got a job, became employee of the month, took his family on their first family vacation, and eventually became an elder at the church. He's with the Lord now. Verse 27, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. So who is truly wise? Those who know this world is not all there is. They can look at, at the incredible order, the complexity and symmetry in the world and see the obvious fact that it is designed in great detail for human life. They realize they need their creator to live as they should. And they can see this sin-sick world is just as the Bible declares it to be, that we all need a savior. They see man's governments throughout history and know there must be a better kingdom, a kingdom of God that is, that is beyond compare. In their simple observing of the world as it is, they shame the wisdom of the wise. And who are those that are truly strong, but those who rely on the strength of God? I read of the, I read of the incredible bravery, bravery of those in Iran and Afghanistan who are willing to be tortured and die for the sake of the cross. That is real strength. Those who stand up against injustice when the powerful threaten them and try to keep them silent they are the ones who are truly strong. And many times in history, it's been those who face death without flinching from the arena, from the burning at the stake, decapitation by radicals, and kept their faith in re-education labor camps whose testimonies convicted the hardest of hearts. They are those who are truly strong in the Lord. Verse 28. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. The ancient Christians were for the most part slaves and men of low station. The whole history of expansion of the church is in reality progressive victory of the ignorant over the learned, of the lowly over the lofty, until the emperor Constantine himself laid down his crown at the cross of Christ. God chose us lowly sinners as his trophies of grace. It demonstrates the vanity of the world to be meaningless. What is eternal is all that will remain, and yet the world runs headlong after things that are going to perish, from the body to finances to material possessions but the lowly born-again soul clings to their relationship with an eternal God. 
we demonstrate that all that fallen man seeks after is vanity, and we show the promises of God to be true by our transformed lives that demonstrate the fruits of God's Spirit in us. Verse 29, so that no man, no human being might boast in the presence of God. In the end, no one can boast of anything that they have done when standing before God. All that lasts is what is accomplished by him and his love through us. He owes us nothing, but he has graciously given us all things. No one can boast for all glory belongs to God. Everything comes from him. He chose the lowly and the despised to be the ones whose eyes he opened to see the world's treasure for the illusion that it is. And by choosing the lowly, God dem is demonstrating that salvation is all by his grace. No one has any reason to boast before him. The cross obliterates all human pretension. No one can stand before God and boast that they knew all along what he was doing. No one at the crucifixion saw the cross as a means to demonstrate the glory and the wisdom of God. You know, no one was there really on Easter morning saying, he said in three days he's going to rise. <laughs> Not a soul. No one has earned their salvation. We can only boast in our incredible, almighty, ultimately wise Lord and Savior. He has done it all in such a way as to help us see that we are but creation and he is the sole creator and Lord of all. I think science is starting to so overwhelmingly demonstrate that. That even those in that upper echelon of science are coming to Christ. Those who've lived for the praise of man and the things of this world has to offer will find on judgment day that all that was all that they worked for was merely wood, hay, and stubble that are consumed in an instant. All the things they boast in now will be gone. I think that even Christians will find that much of their investment of their time in good deeds that were not led by the Holy Spirit will be similar, ending up being consumed, though their soul will be saved, yet so is by fire. Verse 30, and because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became, became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Now that's that exact quote from the passage in Jeremiah that we read earlier. We are in Christ because of the wonderful wisdom of God. Christ Jesus has become for us wisdom from God. This knowledge does not belong to those who endlessly focus on themselves. Those who truly come to know God delight just to know him. He becomes their center. They think of him, delight in him, boast in him. They want to know more and more what kind of God he is. And as they learn that he is the God who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on the earth, naturally, they want those same value, values to prevail in their own lives, not because their egos are bound up with certain arbitrary notions of, say, justice, but because their center is God and they take their cues from him and his character. 
they boast in him. Not in their education or standing or talents, just in the wonder of Jesus and his love. He became to us wisdom from God. Thank the Lord that Jesus became to us wisdom from God. The wisdom of the world was our mindset before we knew Jesus. And as has already been declared, that kind of wisdom is actually foolishness. It looks at the complexity and beauty of creation and declares it's all an accident of time and chance. <laughs> that, that's like looking at a space shuttle and say, wow, how, how did this thing miraculously fall together in pieces and feel itself? Isn't it amazing? <laughs> It encourages us to live for the moment and do it all our way when living for the moment is to forget what matters for eternity and doing it our way ends in destruction. But then Jesus became our wisdom and he showed us the truth of the word of God. He showed us that he is the way. He taught us wisdom that says it's better to give than to receive. He showed us freedom from selfishness and the joy of serving others. There couldn't be a greater contrast in an interpretation of this life. It's basically worldliness or Jesus. Praise and thank him forever for becoming to us wisdom from God. Amen. He is our righteousness. That is part of that wisdom that he is to us. But he shows us what righteousness truly is. And that there's no possibility of obtaining it on our own. You know, we all want to be like Jesus. And I hear some people say that they are like Jesus. But I look at their life and uh, I, I don't see it. <laughs> it's perfectly right living and thinking before the eyes of a holy and perfect God. But it's in him. He is our righteousness. The prophet declared the day would come when we would engrave the words, the Lord is our righteousness. Jeremiah 23, 6. God told Moses numerous times, I am the Lord who makes you holy. Then at just the right time in the world history, God sent Jesus to bear our sins and offer to us the righteousness of his own life. The apostle Paul explains this in 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He writes, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus became to us righteousness from God. And he is our sanctification. Did you notice in that last verse, it is in him that we become the righteousness of God. He described it as being clothed in Christ, putting him on. There was a foreshadow of it, you know, when, when, uh, when Moses said, I want to see your glory, Lord. And so God said, okay. And he put him in the cleft of the rock and covered him with his hand. And then later on, we read about the rock being Christ Jesus. He was in the rock to see the glory. See that foreshadowing? Our sins were nailed to the cross with Christ for he took all our sins upon himself and bore the punishment we deserve and that's why he is our sanctification. That's why we are considered to be in him. And here too we have even in the Old Testament proclaiming 
in, in Leviticus 20, verse 8, keep my statutes and do them. I am the Lord who sanctifies you. You might say, wait a minute, first he said to keep and do the statutes. Yes, we should, but we simply can't. So God reassures us with the fact that he's the one who sanctifies us, not our works. And in just in case we didn't get it, that the Lord makes us holy, he repeats it five more times in the Old Testament. I am the Lord who makes you holy. It's the work of God through Christ Jesus who makes us holy, which is to be sanctified. We're set apart for the purpose of Almighty God, our Creator. Jesus has become for us our sanctification. Praise God. And he's our redemption. To be redeemed is to be bought back. Um, or we could say to be made of value again. We were made in the image of God, but sin marred our souls and condemned us to the justice our rebellion against God deserved. We were slaves to sin, but Jesus purchased us out of slavery with his own blood. His sacrifice made it possible for us to be sanctified in him, and thus he made it possible for us to receive the Holy Spirit. The Spirit begins that process of sanctifying our thoughts and our actions as we yield to him, as he corrects us and guides us through life. The Holy Spirit is helping us increasingly exercise that freedom from sin day by day. And that's what it means to be redeemed. Are you redeemed? Are you growing in grace? Therefore, if Christ is all these things to us, if it's what he's done for us, what do we boast about then? When we see that all that is truly good in us because of, is because of him, how can we divide up into little groups? and compare ourselves with each other. Our humble condition and dependency on God is what unites us. If we are to boast at all, we should boast in the Lord, who is our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification, and our redemption. He is what makes the life he has given to us of value. He is everything good in us. He is our glory and our eternal hope. Again, that verse from Jeremiah, but let him who boasts, boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. For in these things I delight, declares the Lord. Our only boast is in the Lord our God and the privilege of understanding that he practices and delights in steadfast love, in justice, and in righteousness. And that's why he sent Jesus to save us. How appropriate that we should come to this passage this season of Thanksgiving. Our boast is only in our Savior and what he's done for us, what he's made possible. He's our main reason to give thanks. And every other thing of value that we are thankful for is from his hand. What he is to us is incomparably greater than anything this world has to offer. He has given us everything richly to enjoy, but the gift of himself is beyond compare and is the reason for all the other gifts. 
We know when you're tempted to set your affections on things in this life, I plead with you to turn your eyes to the wonder of what Jesus has done for us and all that he is to us. He doesn't grant our wishes like some genie, but he does give us what's most important and what's lasting, whatever is good for us. And as for things that he withholds, we can trust him that he has good reason to withhold them. And that one day we will understand why it was best for us. Praise his name forever. Amen. Amen. I'm going to ask Jill to close us in a song and then I'll give the benediction.